restless through a lack of interest. It's a simple definition. I think we could all, whether you can define it, we certainly know what it is. We've experienced it uh, all too well in all too many circumstances. Uh, Its signs are pretty evident. Our smartphones betray us as to when we are bored. You think in terms of you sit in a doctor's waiting room or any line anywhere, and you just see people with their faces, right? They're in the screen. Why? Because they're, they're bored. Uh, you think in terms of many of our children on long road trips, their faces glued to a screen oftentimes. Or sadly, some of the drivers on those long road trips or even just a daily commute in the insanity of traffic with their faces of all places on a screen all of that ultimately is, has something to do with a, a, that sense of, of boredom, a state of being weary and restless through a lack of, of interest. The solution to that, across the board, the solution to our, our, the, the plague of boredom is, is really simply this, that we would be awakened. That we would be awakened as to where we are and what's going on around us, and it is so much more than we have deluded ourselves into, into thinking. So you go back to those three groups of people I just mentioned. The patients, the people standing in line. Oh my goodness, that they would be awakened to the living souls, the of eternal souls, standing around them, and just say hello, and carry on a conversation. The poor, weary traveler in the back seat, that they would be awakened, that they would have their sight restored perhaps for the first time, if I can say restored for the first time, to have eyes to see the wonder, the glory, the beauty of the setting, the, 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 their surroundings, and what's just flying by them, and they're not even seeing because they're looking down. And oh my goodness, the drivers? That they would be awakening, I'll just be frank, awakened to the danger that they are opposing to themselves and those around them. Awakened, having eyes to see, sight restored across the board. That's the way, that's ultimately the cure for boredom. Where am I going with this? You may have heard that it's possible to be bored with God. Now, that may sound kind of strange to some of us here in the room. You're kind of like, how is that possible? Bored with God? That sounds like a heretical thing to say. But if you drill down on your life, Many of us will be forced to admit that's exactly where we are this morning. We are bored with God. And he would not have that to be so. He would have our hearts, our minds, our lives to be awakened and our sight restored. Let's take a look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 17. We're at the very end of Matthew 17, moving on through this study in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27. A short text, but pretty profound in terms of its, of its implications. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. Uh, Matthew, if you're trying to find it, that's the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. Hear now the word of God. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? 
From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Well, we need to pray. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, uh, we ask that you would awaken us. Uh, We confess here from the outset that our hearts and minds are very much occupied with things that are ultimately of very little standing and value, frankly, uh, trivial in, in many cases, in many cases. We are fascinated, our attention is drawn and fixated uh, on things that, uh, that, that in many cases do not matter. And even, even, if, uh, even in cases where they are good and beautiful things that you have given, we have fallen into the trap of allowing our attention and our lives to be oriented around the gifts instead of the giver. And that is to have our lives completely out of order. And certainly there is much chaos that comes when that happens. And so we are asking for your mercy. We are asking that you would correct all of that indeed, that you would restore our sight, restore our sanity, help us see anew and afresh and aright. And we pray in your name, amen. You may have heard of the concept of, of love languages. Love languages, it's, it's a series of books that have been written on this concept going back, oh my goodness, for probably 20, 30 years. Uh, the idea is that, that love languages have to do with the way that we express and the way that we experience expressions of love uh, from and to uh, one another. Um, it's, it's how we hear love. It's how, like a language, it's how we hear love, it's how we we speak love, and it's said by those who study these things that we, each one of us has what could be called a primary language and a secondary language, and every one of us basically tends towards speaking it, giving it in the way that we are most accustomed and would much, much prefer to receive it. That just stands to reason if it's your native tongue, if, if, if you will. That's what you most readily understand. Uh, let me read you a, a, a quote from a description I, I found just this past week. It kind of captures how this plays itself out. Uh, I should say, first before I read that, that the, the list is basically five. Okay, There's basically five languages out there. I'm sure there are, you can break it down into different um, bullet points under all of that, but there are basically five. Physical touch and closeness, that would be one. Uh, quality time, it would be another. Gifts, uh, the giving of gifts. Uh, acts of service, and then lastly, words of encouragement or affirmation. Those are the five languages that we give, that we, um, that, excuse me, that we speak, that we hear, uh, the native tongues, the primary, the secondary, all of that. Okay, here's the example. How does this play itself out? Here's uh, one scenario that how it might play itself out, just two languages spoken in one marriage and in one house, and you can see how the parties can miss one another, almost like, you know, being at the UN without an interpreter. Okay, If a husband's love language is acts of service, he may be confused when he does the laundry for his wife and she doesn't perceive that as an act of love, viewing it simply performing household duties. 
because the love language she comprehends is words of affirmation, verbal affirmation that he loves her. She may try to use what she values, words of affirmation, to express her love to him, which he would not value as much as she does. If she understands his love language and mows the lawn for him, I don't know why they picked that example. I'm trying to, anyway. Um, he perceives it in his love language as an act of expressing her love for him. Likewise, if he tells her he loves her, she values that as an act of love. And that's just an example of how you know, at least two such languages can be spoken, uh, can be, how this can play itself in one relationship. Oh, I want to drill down for a moment on this concept of one language being words of affirmation, words of encouragement, that which builds up. It comes from the outside and strengthens us deeply uh, from the inside. Certainly the Proverbs speak a lot on this, on this point. Uh, I'm just going to read one, Proverbs 18.21. Don't, I'm gonna, by the time you get there, I'll be done. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So says Solomon. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Little wonder that psychologists tell us that one of the deepest of human needs is to be encouraged, is to be affirmed, is to be, have, you know, have some sense of appreciation from the people that matter uh, around you. What does this have to do with the text? Well, this is basically it. Every one of us, it doesn't matter what your love language is. It doesn't matter what you speak. It doesn't matter what you hear. We all, to varying degrees, need this encouragement, especially from one who matters. And what we see coming out very clearly in this text is that Jesus is showing, demonstrating some astonishing things that our hearts would be encouraged. He is saying some things. He is doing some things, some astonishing things that our own poor hearts would in fact be built up, strengthened, affirmed, and encouraged. What are those astonishing things? There's three. You can see it there in your outline. First is the nature of his identity is put forward yet again for our heart's encouragement. Another would be an astonishing thing is the standing of his disciples, his followers, then and today. They're standing in their status, their place before him, before the living God. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, the reality of the relationship. And in fact, we're talking about, indeed, something that's real, a, a living, breathing relationship between his followers and himself. And when you start drilling down into those things, that becomes all the more astonishing. Every one of those three, and it seems that our Lord intends for our hearts to be encouraged as we are wrestling through with those things. So let's look at these in turn. First, the, the nature of Jesus' identity that comes out Yet again, it's come up so many times here in Matthew's gospel, but yet here's one more time. Uh, this is hearkening back. It's a reminder of something that he has said earlier. If you want to go back to Matthew chapter 5, this is the, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17 is what I'm going to read here in just a minute. It, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, begins with what is oftentimes referred to as the Beatitudes. That's Jesus' description, the marks that are to, to be identifiers of every one of his followers, okay? And then as we live in that way in this poor world, 
we therein will be salt and light. I'm giving you a flow of how the Sermon on the Mount works. But then you hit um, verse 17 and following, and he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is clearing up a misunderstanding here in in what he's uh, saying. And he, he knows he has to say this because otherwise he's going to be misunderstood. Thus far, those who are watching, those who are listening, uh, are just puzzled, confused by his conduct. The the, uh, characters, the company that he keeps, frankly, they find to be rather sketchy and questionable. And now he has given these marks of what his followers are to look like, and they're all about these internal things. They're about character, and it seems Jesus doesn't care about the law. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not it at all. I care about it more than you could possibly imagine. It's just that my understanding is so much deeper and fuller than your own. I have not come to abolish it. I have not come to do away with it. I have come as the fulfillment. It's all about me from the very beginning. All of the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets has always been about me, pointing towards me to prepare the way for my coming. All the prophecies ultimately pointing to him. All the priesthood, all the sacrifices, all the holy places, the holy days, the holy rites, all of that are about him. All of the laws, all of the great events of the Old Testament period, all of the key people, all of that is meant to point towards prepare the way for him. Hearkening back to what I read earlier at the start of the service, that quote from Sally Lloyd-Jones, right? The the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's all about this. This is not isolated, piecemeal, just a collection of stories. And the only thing holding it together is the binding of the book. That is not it at all. It's one story. Okay, that's... Preparatory. That's a reminder. Five seventeen. Matthew five seventeen. That you know. That's all about Matthew, and what brings us down to chapter seventeen, verse twenty four, and this particular incident, and this question that is put to, or really, it's put to ultimately to Jesus. But they're asking Peter just to kind of get to him. So verse twenty four. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, "Does your teacher not pay?" The tax. Now, it's important to recognize what this tax was and was it what it wasn't. This is not a tax that's going back to Rome. This is not a tax that's going to Herod. This is a tax that is meant for the upkeep and preservation of the temple and the priesthood and everything that that was about. You can trace it all the way back to Moses' day. That's what this temple, excuse me, what this tax is about, that's being referred to here. These are not the, tax, the type of tax collectors that we read of all over the Gospels. These are specifically collectors for a tax for the temple, okay? It's critical that we understand that as we grapple with what this passage is actually about. Uh, in the background, there was something of a debate at the time. Uh, because of what was perceived, and really not just perceived, but truly was some, some corruption there amongst the priesthood and the scribes and the temple precincts and all of that, there were some parties within Judaism that wondered, should we pay the tax? And if so, how should we pay the tax? And then you've got this other thing going because there were some rabbis at the time who said, you know, because I'm a rabbi, 
my special status, I shouldn't have to pay the tax. I should be exempt from the tax. So the question comes to Jesus, who's a rabbi. How about you, Jesus? Are you going to pay the tax? That's the background to this question that's being posed to ultimately to Jesus. What is his response? Verses 25 and 26. He said, Peter, Peter said yes in answer to the question. And when he came into the house, which by the way is his house, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, the temple had always been understood as the, the presence of the living God on earth. What is Jesus? He is the presence of the living God on earth. He is the temple. Why should he pay for the upkeep of something that was meant to foreshadow his arrival? And then he tells this little parable. It's a one-sentence parable. Well, two sentences, I guess, but one verse. Short little parable. It's very simple. Doesn't take much to understand. He even tells us basically how to interpret it. You know, so with kings, do they tax their sons? No. I'm the son. Why should I pay? Why should I pay? Jesus has no reason whatsoever, really, to pay this tax because something, as we saw earlier in Matthew's gospel, something with his coming, something greater than the temple was on the scene. That's so hard. It's so hard for us on this side of history to grapple with the significance of that statement, that with Jesus, something greater than the temple was there. And I don't just mean in terms of size or weightiness or architectural beauty, but in the sense of it, this, the temple was the center of all of Judaism, everything was the temple. And Jesus is saying, it's me. This is an astonishing thing. It's pointing again to the nature of his identity, which ought to impact us on at least two levels. One, and I've alluded to this already, how we read our Bibles. How we read our Bibles. Again, this is not, Old and New Testament, this is not a collection of isolated stories or events, a piecemeal just kind of smattering of things held together by the binding of the publisher. This is one story. It's either all driving towards him or reflecting back on him. All 66 books. That has to have some kind of impact on how we read the scriptures. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is this how we understand, how we view this one that those scriptures are ultimately about, how we view Jesus. You know, there are so many figures, great figures in the course of world history, and some of them, just to scratch the surface of their significance, it takes volumes, maybe a shelf full of volumes, to capture something of their influence and their, you know, the, the, the impact that they had on the flow of events. With Jesus... It takes not just multitudes of volumes, it takes centuries of events. It takes centuries of prophecies, scores of people, the whole sacrificial system, all the priests, all the prophets, all the kings, all the laws, all the rules, ultimately found and fulfilled in him. In fact, it takes all of that 
just to point to him, just to foreshadow him, just to give us the, his, the, the people that, came, that were waiting and waiting for his coming, just to build up a sense of anticipation of him. My point being, he is so strong. He is so wise. He is so mighty, so great. Is he not then worthy of our trust? Is he not then worthy of our following him, given who we're speaking of and how he is revealing himself to us? Again, that our hearts would be encouraged. Jesus is conveying some astonishing things there, something greater, greater than the greatest thing you can think of. That's the first point. The second comes after it. Now, I should have said this earlier. As we move through these points, what we're doing is we're, getting, we're moving more and more from the explicit and obvious things to the more implicit and perhaps almost hidden, but there. So now we're going a little deeper, just a little deeper, a little bit further below the surface, because now we see something not just regarding the nature of his identity, but the standing and stature and status of his disciples his followers, then and now. Let's look at it again, verses 25 through 27. So now we're going to pick up with, well, Jesus says, okay, I don't have to pay the tax. That's not all he says, is it? No, hardly. What do you think, Simon? Picking up halfway through verse 25. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Did you note some of the details of this conversation? You grammarians, you may have picked up on this. Jesus' use of the plural, he doesn't speak of the son shouldn't have to pay but the sons shouldn't have to pay. Now, if, this is, if, if all he has in mind is just himself and his not having to pay this tax, then he would surely have used just the singular. But he's speaking with some intentionality here. He says sons. And it's not just that. You push further. And how much does he pay? How much of this tax does he pay? Not just the two drachmas, but twice that amount, a full shekel. Enough for Peter and himself. Why? Why pay twice the, the, the needed amount if this is just about him? It's not just about him. It's about his followers. It's about, can I just say this? It's about his brothers, because what this ultimately is pointing us to is about the work of adoption. What theologians have referred to and recognize it, we, we see this explicitly and implicitly all through the Bible, especially in the New Testament, but alluded to in the Old Testament. What are we, what are we speaking of that? What do we mean regarding that? Now, I don't want you to read this now, but there's a great quotation in your quotes and notes from the Westminster Confession in the chapter on adoption. The whole paragraph is right there. Read it later. Let me just tell you the, quick, quick, the, uh, the, the cliff notes. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question that's dealing with this very issue. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. 
That's what's going on here. J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, puts it this way. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If that is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. We need to hear that. We are, if we're followers of Jesus, the status that we have is sons and daughters of the king, adopted, brought into his family, all centered on Jesus. And by that, I mean two things. All centered on Jesus, first, because of Jesus. That's how it is that we can be adopted. That's how it is that we can be called sons and daughters of the king, all because of Jesus because of his finished work, having lived the life that we were supposed to live and his having done it in our stead, and dying the death we deserve to die again in our, in our stead, the great exchange, the great exchange, such that we can be called sons and daughters of the king. So because of him, because of his work, we can be called that. And through him, we are treated, Because of the Son, we are treated as sons and daughters. I mean that gender inclusively. God looks at us now because of the finished work of Christ. We have the same status, the same standing, the same security as as his eternally begotten Son, as sons and daughters of the King. Now, if we hadn't read Galatians 5 earlier, you would have thought I just spoke heresy. But Dave read it. You heard it. We have the same standing and security before the eternal Father in heaven as the eternal Son because we have been brought into the family. We belong. We belong. We are orphans, outcasts, no more. No more. And that is an astonishing thing meant for the encouragement of our hearts. And it stands in utter radical contrast to the way it was done in those days. What I mean by that is the Roman practice of adoption, what what the New Testament, the first hearers of, of these documents would have understood. When they heard this idea of adoption, what they would have heard is someone, for whatever reason, wants to have an heir. They want to put their name upon someone to carry on the family name. Those of you who have seen Ben-Hur, that's a big deal in the second act of that that story, that movie, okay? Um, In those days, unlike so many cases, in most cases today, adoption was not done of an infant. You waited. You waited to see if that young man was going to prove himself to be fit to carry on the family name because you, of course, didn't want to put your name upon someone who didn't seem to, you know, have potential. That is not the way God the Father does this. He does not wait and assess and put his name upon us because of what he sees in us. Frankly, he puts his name upon us despite what he sees of us. 
And that is a wonder of his grace. That is the exclamation point upon the the wonder and astonishment of, at least our, which should be our astonishment, of his love. Now, there are significant implications there, too, of, of this reality. I'll just give you three. One, just in terms of how we understand obedience in the Christian life. If we understand, to the degree that we understand ourselves to be children, sons and daughters adopted by the king, following his commands is born out of a desire to honor him, to imitate him, to please him, knowing our security is completely taken care of. It's all done out of love for the one who's already loved us so. It impacts, it transforms the way that we pray. It is not impersonal. It is not mechanistic. It is bold and free. Why? Because we're children. Children who know they can run into their parents' bedroom in the middle of the night and wake up the king at three in the morning. Who else can do that but the child? But the child. That affects how our understanding of obedience, our understanding of prayer, our understanding of trust, just how we go through life. We, you know, it should free us from anxiety and worry in everything because he is our father in everything. So much we could say on every one of those points. I'm just, so much to consider. But again, that our hearts would be encouraged. He is giving us these astonishing things. Lastly, the reality of this relationship. I'm going to try and go fast here. Uh, It's so important, though. Verses 25 and 27, I want to read again. And this is perhaps the most hidden of the three, but it is so astonishing. Jesus asked Peter this, what do you think, Simon, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Does Does this seem odd to you? I don't just mean the fish thing. Now, that is weird, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, well, we'll start with that, the coin in the fish. I mean, you have to know that's not really the main point of this text because the miracle's not even recorded. Peter is just told to go and do this, and we assume that he did, but it's not even documented, not even recorded, so it can't be the main point. That's strange, but the strangest and most significant thing is Jesus' explanation as to why pay this tax that he doesn't need to pay. Peter has to be thinking, and the thoughtful reader has to be thinking, wait a minute. Since when does he care about not offending these people? He has never cared about that. Why here? Why now? A lot of commentators, a lot of debate on this this question. Michael Card, interestingly enough, in his uh, commentary here, uh, I think probably has the best answer. And, and it's helpful, you know, you move, helps, it helps us move from this strange reason to a sweet revelation. And it helps then to, to understand the, the flow of events. So th- these men, you, you see there in the beginning of this text in verse 24, these men have just returned from this excursion up north, Caesarea Philippi. It's basically chapter 16, 17, what that was all about. They've returned, they're tired, they're settling into Peter's house. 
Jesus has told them they're not going to stay there long. They're getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and he's told them, despite the fact they don't understand and can't believe it and don't want to hear it, he's going to Jerusalem. Jesus knows he has precious few opportunities left to get private time with these men. And come, in come these temple tax collectors pushing for a, a, a fight, trying to provoke something, a response. If Jesus gives them what they want, a fight, if he pushes back here and does what he's within all rights to do, well, that's just what he's got, a fight, a confrontation. But instead... He doesn't push back. He pays the tax. Why? You know what that reveals of his heart? His love for his followers and his desire just to spend time with them. His love for his followers and his desire just to spend time with them. It's a measure of his affection. Does this surprise you? It should. It should actually astonish us. His, the, a measure of his affection, the reality, coming back to the, the reality of this relationship, it tells us some things about Jesus, his longing to be with these men, these friends, his need as the fully God but fully man, and fully God, fully the eternal God, part of the Trinity, eternally relating, God needing, Jesus needing relationship. If you've heard Luke and I use this argument before, and it's well-grounded, if he needs relationship, if he needs friendship, how much more so do we, which speaks so powerfully to the epidemic of loneliness that's being written about so much right now. Did you know, by the way, that when it comes to the shortage of our longevity on this earth, Loneliness is now being connected. It has at least as much of an impact as regular cigarette smoking or obesity. This tells us, this passage tells us something about Jesus. It tells us something about us. It also tells us something about how he feels about us. His longing for us. Not because there's something incomplete in him, but simply because he loves us. Longing to be with us, yes, for our own sake, because we do need that, made for that, but also simply because he loves us, simply because we are objects of his affection, and therein he wants to be with us. This is astonishing. Go back, now start with point one. Who is he? The eternal son of God, the fulfillment of everything, Come. And because of his coming, we belong as adopted sons and daughters of the king. And as though that wasn't enough, not only is it just kind of a, hey, come, you belong, but it's a pursuit. A pursuit of you and I because of his love for us, it is so much more. It is, I think of above and beyond, so much more than we ever could have hoped for, certainly so much more than we deserve. 
but so much more than we ever could have hoped for or expected. His love for us, his people. Today. Us, you, me, sitting in the seats, standing up here. It's good news. It's really needed. It's really needed. Let's pray.